It's time for expert guests to share their insights on all things cybersecurity. It's time to get inside the minds of cyber attackers. It's time for the Software Insecurity Podcast from Checkmarks. Welcome to the Software Insecurity Podcast from Checkmarks, where expert voices weigh in on today's most critical cybersecurity issues. I'm Matt Slott. And I'm Stephen Gates. Joining us today is Checkmarks Field CTO and Head of Supply Chain Security, Zagi Zornstein. Together, we'll discuss a chilling cybersecurity threat that's been on the rise recently, software supply chain attacks. Now, Zaki will help us lay out the latest trends in these attacks, how to assess the current threat landscape, and offer some concrete suggestions on how to reduce your risk. Welcome, Zaki. Hi, guys. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Zaki. So now to start things off, can you tell our listeners a little bit about where your passion for cybersecurity came from? And how your life journey led you to the current role at Checkmarks. So I think my journey with IT and cyber began when I realized that one of my superpowers is that I really like to learn new stuff. And the field that is always changing across IT, to be honest, is what we used to call security, or these days we call cyber. So I've been involved in the cyber industry for a very long time. I think that more than 15 years. I've done a variety of different roles, started as a pen tester and then a CISO. I've been an architect, and in the last 10 years, I've been a threat analyst, tracking down advanced persistent threats and understanding the attacker mindset and where the trends are. This is actually how I started thinking about open source and the ecosystem and who's protecting the ecosystem. So that's actually led us, and my previous experience actually led me to the concept of who's looking at the code from strangers that we are automatically ingesting inside our projects. And the rest is history. Now, I thought you were going to say you started coding when you're three years old, right? Because that's usually going to happen sometimes in folks in this industry. Yep. So and on that front, Zaki, so I know as of late, we've started seeing a lot more concerns when it comes to the software supply chain, right? So open source packages, I've been guilty of it myself, both with work and for personal projects. You see a package that has been downloaded 6 million times. It looks good enough. I guess, what should our listeners know about how supply chains work and how these attackers are taking advantage of these well-adopted software development processes? So first, I need to say that risk at supply chain isn't anything new. It's a risk we've been aware of for a very long time. But I think around SolarWinds attack that happened around a year and a half, two years ago, we quickly realized the impact of those attacks could have to disrupt our digital way of living. So basically, we've been using open source for a very long time. And one of the frequent questions I get, why haven't we seen this threat before? And many times it takes a while until the threat actors realize the impact it can have and I think it really started, I would say, like 10 years ago. And the explosion together with the GitHub, everybody's a contributor, everybody can contribute a package, uh, led to us not just relying on organizations which are well-funded and tested, like the Linux Foundation, but basically taking code from everywhere. And this is actually what led us to the explosion in the number of open source package supply chain risks that we are seeing these days. 
Well, I mean, it's so true, right? We saw what happened with obviously solar winds and then the log 4J, right? Which again happened right before Christmas a year or so ago. And then the executive order around software building materials. Then we got NIST guidelines, making recommendations. There's a new memorandum that came out September of last year. And so we see there's a tremendous interest around, especially in the in the world of you know the federal government and governments around the world, that they've got to get their arms around this open source supply chain attack vector. And so we know that attackers are discovering new ways of injecting packages with these malicious payloads. And it's really for a simple goal of developers and organizations, including this tainted code in their applications. It's as simple as that. So can you share some of the most cutting edge strategies that these attackers are using today to inject malicious code into the supply chain? Yes, actually, we're like everybody else. We're looking back at the year and trying to see the new trends and the new risks that have been over the last year. And one of the new trends that we are seeing is we always assume that if something is popular, it is safe because many people use it. So our basic assumption when we're using open source packages says, I don't have time to do a code review for the code packages I'm using. But if it's open, somebody else must be reviewing that. And if it's popular, it must be safe. And those are exactly the assumptions that the attacker is actually abusing. One of those very, very dangerous techniques is called account takeover, meaning they don't just publish malicious packages. They actually go after the accounts of very popular open source contributors, hijack their account, hence the name account takeover, and then use their credentials to upload new versions of a very popular, very trusted open source packages to exploit us of all. We've seen it with a very famous attack called UA Parser, but over the last year, we have seen it again and again. Not only that, we've actually seen in August the first phishing campaign targeting open source contributors, meaning attackers have realized that abusing contributor accounts is an easy way to gain popularity. Not only that, while we still are in the middle of the effort to equip open source contributor with two-factor authentication, we have actually noticed an alarming trend. Several underground criminal tool sets, such as Evil Proxy, which is a tool set to do automatic phishing, added support into NPM, PyPy, and GitHub. With this support, actually came a built-in support to bypass two-factor. So on the one end, we are trying to strengthen our defense. On the other end, the attackers are moving faster than us, bypassing the defenses. We are still in the middle of creation. So I would say account takeover and the realization of popular doesn't mean safe, that's a big deal for us. So now we need to really examine where we are taking our code, what are the processes we are taking, so we can't assume popular is safe anymore. Absolutely. It's like the Spotify effect, right, where music gets 
percolated up because it's the most popular, but doesn't necessarily mean it's the best song. I'll leave aside my music preferences there, but definitely get the sense of that. And yeah, I know, Zaki, as you mentioned, it can be particularly potent. Once we find these otherwise reputable packages, I think there's also a bit of a free rider problem where we as developers just see, oh, it's got five stars and it's got 700 million downloads. Somebody's probably looked into it and is good enough. But I guess what I'm hearing from you is obviously that's not the case. And oftentimes what could be a good package one minor, minor version later could obviously have injected nefarious code. So I guess on that front, we're saying in cybersecurity, obviously you can't secure what you don't know. So what's the best way that we can become aware of these potentially manipulated or compromised packages across the industry, whether we're developing for ourselves or developing for our organizations? How do we keep ahead of this? So one other interesting development that we are seeing is that as developer, we assume that everything that we see when we're examining a package is validated. So basically what we're seeing is the assumption of don't believe what you see. In many cases that we have seen this year, we are seeing attacker abusing a lack of validation in popular package manager such as PyPy. What do I mean? When an attacker uploads a package into PyPy, he is asked by the package manager Where does your code came from? Are you part of Kubernetes, React, where your code came from? Sadly, today, an attacker can just specify any popular GitHub repo and automatically get his stars. This is a technique we call starjacking. For example, when I'm looking at a package at PyPy, I would advise not blindly trust the stars that are presented on the package manager, but actually clicking on the link and going to the code and see if there is even at a high level a similarity between the code that this package claims to do and the GitHub repo, which is linked to it. So those are some of the things we are encouraging our developers to look. Don't automatically trust, not just popular, every star that you see. Actually take a couple of minutes to do that, to click on the link and look at the code And we are seeing attackers being more and more aware of reputation. And instead of just stealing reputation, they are now trying to gain some reputation to themselves. One of the latest attacks we have seen involved an attacker trying to fool around 30,000 users to take some code in the form of a malicious open source package and automatically sending them, guys, please star my GitHub repo. He actually got his GitHub repo on the trending list for that day. So not just stealing reputation, but actually like building fake reputation is another trend that we are seeing. So take a moment to dig inside the code to see if you're seeing something a bit strange. That's interesting because I think that specific scenario you were mentioning there, Zaki, that had to do with TikTok and some Discord servers. So it's really interesting, these vectors that a lot of these nefarious actors are using, there's a strong social engineering component as much as there is an actual code or malicious package component. So definitely you often give everyone a hard time in terms of their tech competency, but it seems like even across generations and ages, whether you're on TikTok or whether you're using an old platform, you're potentially at risk of some of these attacks. Yeah. And I have to say, because you mentioned social engineering, so a couple of the people questioned the validity of that package and tried to confront the offer. And he basically told them, guys, this isn't a virus, it's open source. So <laughs> A free virus. <laughs> yeah. So again, just having the realization that if something is free and out there and everybody can look, it doesn't mean that it's automatically safe. 
So even that is a gap we need to come across that. And attackers are trying to abuse that in their social engineering. So I was actually thinking of making that a T-shirt logo. It's not a virus, it's open source. <laughs> Excellent. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about research, right? Because this is one of the things I find so interesting about what you folks are doing. And there is no doubt whatsoever that attacks are being discovered daily. And I have a fantastic opportunity to work firsthand with some of your researchers. And I want to do a special shout out to these guys and gals, right? Because some great, great stuff coming from them. Aviad and Joseph and Yehuda and Tal and Guy and Alik and Ilad and a couple others. And they're continually scanning, reviewing, indexing, and updating the research. And so I have, a, like I said, firsthand opportunity to work with this research many times before it actually goes public. And I see things like the recent TikTok thing that we had found out about, you know, Lofty Gang, an organization out of Brazil. I got Red Lily, which was kind of interesting because it was like this new phenomenon of protest infection. I don't know what you want to call it, but something we've never seen. So what are the most interesting or surprising things they've discovered in their work recently? Recently, and what can we expect to see happening in the future as well? So I think what we've seen actually over the weekend, and I want to give a big shout out to Alec, who actually spent his weekend working on that. So basically we saw a new attack and we saw somebody compromising some open source packages or actually uploading malicious packages. But we are now starting to see more and more usage of ransomware. So for me, cybercrime has totally discovered the potential of open source as a new vector to use to spread his evil intent. And using ransomware is an easy way to get money. And I can say, based on the number of ransomware attacks that we are seeing, I don't believe this trend will go away. But we actually saw something technically very, very challenging. Basically, what we used to see in the past is whatever we actually took a package and install it, the malicious code start running, meaning we could detect it quite easily. But in this case, the attacker actually hid the code way inside the package. So once you're actually starting to hide the code inside specific function, even for the defender, it's much difficult to detect those attacks. So I think that the complexity of attack will actually grow very much. And we've seen polymorphic code two weeks ago with the WASP and now actually hiding inside specific functions. And we are seeing cybercrime all over the place. And I guess that it's not public yet, but it will be public until this podcast will be aired. We just saw criminals using the open source ecosystem as a way to spam. Basically, they upload a huge number of packages. I think that our last count is 150,000 packages across Nugget, PyPy, NPM in an attempt to capture popular name, like package with the names free, trackers, cheats. So if there is a good sense somebody will look for a very popular keywords and actually find one of those packages that doesn't contain malicious code, but links to malicious site, the same way that we are with spam or phishing. So cybercrime has totally realized that open source is a very, very attractive attack surface. And we are every day seeing new attacks and new TTPs for those attackers to abuse. 
Absolutely. You touch upon some very interesting points there too, Zaki. I think we talk about these multiple angles that attackers are using. We talk about ransomware. I know many of us have seen or been the victims of ransomware in our everyday lives. A good example is the Colonial Pipeline takedown here in the Southeast United States. I think you know this about Mizaki. I'm a car guy. I actually had a track day that weekend and I couldn't find fuel because of the panic around that pipeline shutdown. It just seems like without getting too far out there, you know, I think we've kind of turned a corner in terms of the age of the internet. There was a moment there where the internet was pretty innocent. It was a place for cat memes and it was a place for just goofy gifs. And I feel like in the last five, 10 years, to your point, we've really kind of seen a shift and people are recognizing there's opportunity for criminal behavior and secure money, Bitcoin, crypto, what have you. And I think we've definitely seen an explosion, both socially, you know, social engineering seems like also within code itself, and then just taking advantage of the open source, the goodwill in the open source community. And I think just as an aside that that sucks. I guess I'll just leave that out there. For the listeners here, what can our listeners do to understand what is dependable and accurate, right? You mentioned starjackings. Obviously, that's a specific technique that takes away credibility from things like GitHub or PyPy. What do we have in our arsenal today to make sure that packages actually are five-star and legitimate and don't have malicious code in them or have been compromised? So I think that although we are talking what the attackers are doing, um, we as an industry have also been very active over the last year. And one of the major initiatives that we have taken is around software bill of materials. So first of all, it's around visibility and accountability. So software bill of materials actually allow us to realize and know what open source packages I'm actually using. It sounds trivial, But even before that, there were many cases like in the log4j, we weren't actually sure what open source package we were using. So I think that the first step is here. Now we have way better visibility than what we used to have. And the next step is what do I do with this visibility? Now that I have the accurate list of open source packages am I using, how can I gouge the risk level or the maturity level or the safety level of those packages? And this is exactly what we've been working on as an industry. We've been at Checkmarks working with other companies every time that we find something bad to work together to get it removed. So every time we find a malicious package, we work with the package managers and GitHub and all the relevant bodies to keep the open source ecosystem safe. So SBOM is a great way to know what we're using And now we just need to think about a couple of more efficient ways to track those bad packages, those bad attackers. Because in the end, we don't have a problem of malicious packages. We have a problem with attackers. So they won't go away. As you mentioned, man, it's a business and it's a quite lucrative business for them. So we need to think how we do it at scale and as a process. So SBOM was a great start. Now it's up to us to go to the next level as an industry. So, Zaki, as an author myself, you and I worked on this white paper that we recently released, and it was dropping the S-bomb, why the industry must unite to defend against software supply chain attacks. And I know that you're traveling all over the world, planes, trains, automobiles, hotels, whatever, and you often speak about the fact that there's nothing like cve.miter.org right? Which again, we all know is tracking vulnerabilities, but there's nothing out there that can track malicious packages. So for the listening audience, I want you to help make it clear. What are the differences between vulnerable and malicious packages? And second, what are you recommending the industry do 
to solve this lack of tracking issue? So that's a great point, Stefan. First of all, we need to understand that there's nothing wrong with CVE. CVE was always meant to talk about risk. What is the potential risk? When we are talking about a malicious package, you can think of a backdoor. There is no potential risk. It is the threat itself. It is the attacker doing whatever he wants to. So although CVEs are great and they are widely used, they were never built to track malicious packages. That led to an inconsistency. Sometimes malicious packages will be tracked as CVE. Most of the time, they do not. So first thing we need to decide as an industry, what is going to be the standard? If we decide that CVE is the standard, that's great. I'm all for it. But basically, my team reports on thousands of malicious packages and very few percentage get tracked as CVEs. So if CVE is the standard of choice, I'm okay with that. But let's make it formal and let's expand it. Or maybe we need something more than CVE. And why am I saying more than CVE? Because basically, CVE were meant to deal with logical risk. And they are, to be honest, reactive. I mean, there is a code. And a vulnerability can be detected years afterwards, like in the case of Log4j. But when dealing with malicious actors and the impact they can have on our code base, we want something a bit more proactive. We want something a bit more immediate. Understanding that a CVE usually represents a vulnerability, a mistake. So once it's fixed, it's done and we can move on. Dealing with malicious packages, as I said before, the problem aren't with the malicious packages, are with the attackers. So for me, having a solution in place that not just track malicious packages, but actually allow researchers to analyze and understand who is the attacker behind this. What are the new trends that we see? How can we track more packages related to that tracker? Sadly, in most of the cases that we see, we see a package being reported into NPM or PyPy or Maven. That package would be removed and deleted. So we don't have the evidence to examine what happened. At Checkmarks, we actually keep all historical records and we actually offer to share them with other researchers. Because when our researchers are examining malicious packages, they find hints to other packages in other languages. Like if we find something on PyPy as Alec has found this weekend, we actually found the same attacker doing a very similar attack in NPM. So we need some kind of standard to mark malicious package, to store that in historical data, and maybe even share some of the data that you don't usually get with the CVE. Because just deleting the packages and thinking that the problem will go away probably isn't the best strategy to attack open source attackers. We can't just format the computer and the virus will not come back. They are coming back and we need to understand how they are coming back so we can better defend ourselves. So we need some kind of a standard. It could be CV, it could be something else, but probably we'll need a bit more than that in ability to track what the attackers are doing so we can better defend ourselves. And this is part of what we call threat intelligence that in the past wasn't a big part when we talked about CVE. You didn't have threat intelligence on the contributor who did the bug. You only focused on the code. And we're saying to the industry, take a step back 
and look at the attacker because the malicious code is just the symptom. It's not the root cause and analysis of what we need to do. That's one really interesting point that you raised there, Zaki, in terms of contributor reputation. I think that's a key differentiator for us at Checkmarks. And I know what you're describing, to break it down for my sake, it sounds like we almost need like an Interpol most wanted list of some of these contributors, right? Because they're moving across package managers, they're moving across languages, but ultimately they're still using some of the same attacks. So we need AI to be focused on what's being published and see if we can figure out patterns among some of these nefarious actors. Matt, I know you're a hands-on guy, right? You're working with these products every day. You're working with checkmark stuff day in and day out. So how today can customers consume this threat intel? How are we delivering it to customers? And then maybe speak a little bit about what we may be doing in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. If you are a Checkmarks customer today, certainly you can run our SCA scan engine, right? So, you know, obviously you need SCA access. Although if you're a JetBrains user, that comes free within JetBrains, a little tidbit there. And we integrate our supply chain security scan capabilities within our SCA offering. Although, you know, we recognize that they're not one and the same. We do tie the results together among that SCA engine. So if you're using JetBrains, it'll actually automatically scan any supported repository or framework. If you're using Node or NPM, or if you're using Maven, the IDE will go and use our threat intelligence to Zaki's point. Alternatively, within Checkmarks 1, it's highlighted if you run an SCA scan, we actually have a breakdown under supply chain that breaks down malicious packages that are found. So it's very much highlighted. Each result actually links to a detailed description of what the nefarious action is that the package is doing. Lastly, we've recently launched DevHub, which is a great opportunity for the larger community to see both CVEs, so kind of traditional, just around vulnerable packages, but we are working to publish a lot of Zaki's findings and his team's findings to our DevHub, which is devhub.checkmarks.com. And that's free and available. So you can search using the vulnerabilities database and look for actual vulnerabilities free of charge, right? We're posting that for the betterment of the community. You know, obviously it serves us as a company to have this as a solution, but also serves us as a people and as a community to help our open source developers as well, make sure they avoid some of these attacks. It all goes back to doing the right thing, right? Doing the right thing for the community, the developers, and especially the organizations out there today that are literally thriving on the software that they're developing. And they've got to know that it's secure, secure as possible. Zaki, is there something else you would like to mention about your research? Where can organizations find out more about this? So for us, if you really want to know what's happening out there, and we are sharing all of our findings, not just with the package manager and with developers, but with the rest of the world. So I encourage you to go into our blog post when we have detailed reports of any major attacks that we are seeing and every new trends such as we discussed here. So the blog on checkmarks.com contains all our latest research. Be happy to share some of the great work. Stephanie is helping us getting out there with the rest of the world. Yeah, and we're also posting them on medium.com. So couple different places where you can find this research. And again, share it widely. I mean, people need to become aware of what actually is happening out there today. Well, that's it for this first episode of the Software Insecurity Podcast. I want to give a huge thanks to Zaki for joining us today to enlighten us on supply chain attacks. And a big thanks to you for listening in. I'm Stephen Gates. And I'm Matt Slotten. Remember, if you have any burning cybersecurity queries, keep an eye out on LinkedIn to submit your very own listener questions for upcoming episodes. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and review and tell a friend about us. See you next time on the Software Insecurity Podcast from Checkmarks. Checkmarks.